Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello, and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. Today, I'm joined by two guests for what I believe is only perhaps the second time in Standard Deviations history. The first of these guests is Alex Merguia. Alex has a doctorate in clinical psych from George Washington University. Uh, He was the founder of InStream Solutions, a retirement planning software company, and is a managing principal at McLean Asset Management. I'm also joined by Wade Fow. Uh, Wade has a doctorate in economics from Princeton. He's a professor of retirement income at the American College of Financial Services and is also a principal and director at McLean Asset Management, as well as being the author of several books. So Drs. Alex and Wade are here today to talk about some recent fascinating research they've done into retirement styles and the accompanying implications uh, for the right sorts of income streams. So welcome to the show, doctors. Thank you. Thanks for having us on the show. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us on, Daniel. Absolutely. So Alex, look, psychologists eat first on this show. We're going to we're going to start with <laughs> we're going to start we're going to start with you because you uh you are a kindred spirit like me. You're a clinical psychologist who has spent most of his career in, in the industry. And so when I when I have the opportunity to talk to someone like you, I'm always interested what you think about behavioral finance 2.0 or 3.0. I'd be interested to hear what you think the accomplishments of of financial psychology have been thus far, and more importantly, perhaps where you think we're headed and where we still need to go. Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. And uh, I've been waiting my entire career for someone to ask me that. (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, uh, to answer that, though, I I have to be honest, I, I you know, in, in my studies, I, you know, there's a scientist practitioner model, and I always viewed myself as a scientist as opposed to a practitioner when it came to psychology. Listening to your podcast, you know, I, I think you're you're a practitioner at heart. You really like soak it up, it, it seems to me. And the first thing that struck me, I don't know if you had this this effect, but I really didn't know what behavior finance was at all. I I never came across it in the hallways of psychology. And so I've always mentioned it to Wade. What struck me was, it seemed to me, social psychology, because I I think it's akin to social psychology a little bit. And I'm I'm generalizing here, mind you. But it seemed the hallways of social psychology and behavioral finance and economics department never had lunch together. You know, (laughs) because when I was exposed to it in the investment side of things, that's what really had I had echoes of, oh, this is kind of like social psychology concepts, if you will. Now, where and then it just became fascinating to me just because of my my natural background where I, you know, I, I think what's happening is we've done a great job as an industry of pointing out, hey, look, this is where it gets murky in the middle. Right. There's rational finance, there's psychology. This is where it gets murky in the middle. And uh, this is why I think we've done a great job of pointing these things out. And, you know, these are some heuristic shortcuts that we take that might lead us down the road to to inefficient portfolios or not being optimal with our retirement decisions. Right. 
I, I think I think we've taken that. Uh, there may be more, but as you know, you point out, I don't know. There's a hundred plus <laughs> things that can lead us awry. You know, I don't think 150 will make a big difference. So effectively, the next step is really putting these into practical applications. And I think other than the the default investments in 401k, where you take advantage of someone's inertia, and you know, it's led to great positive impact. Off the top of my head, now I'm not a student of this though, in the manner you are. I don't know if there's many other things now I, I that that we've done. I do think steps are being made in that next phase. And I think you're leading the charge with in terms of how we can develop programs for advisors to help accommodate consumers, if you will, or their clients in making good decisions along the way. And, and here it's very interesting because as much as I said social psychology, and a lot of folks like to also point out Cialdini's book. I think the old school direct response marketers like Eugene Schwartz and 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 Halbert did a lot, you know, in terms of identifying reciprocity, social proof, authority, and things like that, and how an advisor can bring that into their into their sort of dynamic with a with a consumer with an with a client to you know begin to help them make better decisions. I I think though that's a very heavy lifting. You know, from that vantage point, the other piece that I think is where I'd like to see this go is the development of frameworks and, you know, frameworks to help make these decisions better. As you know, as you read everyone's conclusion at the end of the day, it's these are these shortcuts that we take. But guess what? It's like gravity. Just knowing about them isn't going to necessarily change it. And I agree. You know, so creating frameworks around that is is really optimal for us. And I think indirectly we've come up with that via the financial plan. If you really think about what the financial plan does, it really takes advantage of a lot of concepts, temporal discounting, you know, the idea of your future self, the backcasting, the sort of these rules-based decisions that add to this automaticity of decision-making within the construct of financial planning. So I, I, I think we're we're getting there, but I think it's really the practical application that's now is the, the next phase of this. And, you know, we'll talk about it later, but that's that's really where what Wade and I wanted to roll our sleeves up on and you know and, and do research around. But that's that's my answer. That's the best way I can answer your question there, Daniel. Yeah, I, I agree with you that I don't think we need ever longer lists of biases, right? We need practical <laughs> applications that are that are baked in to the, the actual, you know, the water that that our clients are swimming in. And I know that's what I'm working on and, and what you're working on. Now, Wade, um, look psychologists do eat first on this podcast but i'm not going to i'm not going to ignore the guy when it comes <laughs> to retirement income and wade you know i i don't think i've ever told you this but but you first came onto my radar because you were advocating for things that that other folks sort of didn't love things like reverse mortgages things like guaranteed income and insurance products that that often come with hefty fees and get a bad reputation why is it that you diverge with a lot of the popular thinking ar around these products? And, and what does the industry get wrong when it comes to these products and, and retirement income? Sure, sure. And, and so you're right. I have gotten a lot of tomatoes thrown at me over my career with these different <laughs> speaking to fee-only financial advisors about uh, tools that they generally are not interested in. But I think where people get it wrong sometimes is they want to focus on different financial planning tools in isolation. 
So then they really focus on, yes, things like insurance or reverse mortgages can have high fees associated with them. But you have to take a step back with retirement. It really is different from pre-retirement. I think so much of the financial world is focused on accumulation. That's where modern portfolio theory, seeking the highest risk-adjusted returns, just growing a pot of assets, and then just extrapolating that into retirement where nothing really changes except you are now spending from those assets. Well, spending from those assets has a big impact. It's this whole idea of sequence of returns risk. It's not a new idea at this point, but it's. I think people don't appreciate the just how small changes to distributions from an investment portfolio can have a huge long-term impact on that portfolio, whether it's just spending a little bit less throughout retirement or whether it's being flexible so that if markets are down, I, I cut back on spending or whether it's I skip some of the spending from the portfolio by sourcing that instead to something like a reverse mortgage or the cash value of a whole life insurance policy, something that I call a buffer asset that's external to the portfolio. Uh, just having that flexibility, not having to take all these distributions from the investment portfolio can have this huge impact on preserving the portfolio. And so then the issue of, well, reverse mortgage is expensive, life insurance is expensive, uh, variable annuities are expensive, but in the context of the overall financial plan, coming at this from economics, and I do feel like I have some connection with, with you. I was like, Daniel Kahneman won his Nobel Prize. I got to go to those celebrations and everything. But, but coming at it from the economist, the focus is on efficiency. If you can find a strategy, then it can allow you to spend more throughout retirement and or have more legacy at the end, not less of either, either the same of one, more of the other, or more of both, more spending and more legacy, then you have a more efficient strategy. And when you take these financial tools out of isolation and you consider them in the broader picture of coordinating with the investment portfolio, you can potentially, and much of the like distribution of possible outcomes, a very high chance that you'll be better off by strategically using these tools. And so then the question about what does a fee mean? If a particular strategy allows me to spend more and have more legacy, the fee drag has no meaning on that. I have a better financial outcome for my given asset base. And that's where I think people can get it wrong just because they want to look at these tools in isolation and not how they can work together in a coordinated retirement plan. Is it is it safe to say that a lot of the benefits of, of these tools is behavioral? Because if you look at, you know, if you look at something like an, an annuity on paper for a long-term investor, you know, just simple sort of buy and hold 60-40 is gonna often beat an annuity with respect to, to both performance and to fees. But, but of course, there's a lot more variability there, there's a lot more uncertainty, there's a lot more risk, and there's a lot of behavioral risk. Is it is it safe to say that a lot of the benefit of these, you know, quote unquote unpopular tools is is behavioral? Behavior can certainly be a part of it. And part of it too, is especially on the annuity side, to think about that as a bond alternative, not as a stock alternative. Mm -hmm. So ideally, you're not really selling stock investments to purchase the annuity. And therefore, you're not necessarily giving up the long-term upside potential of that asset base. Now, there may be some short-term issues with if the funds are tied up or if you don't have a cash refund provision and everything else. But to the extent that you're replacing bonds, with protected lifetime income, 
uh, over the long term, you're not necessarily hurting legacy. Plus, you're increasing your risk capacity. Your lifestyle is no longer as vulnerable to market downturns. And that's really where I think the behavioral element can come in, that people now know that no matter what happens, they have a baseline level of spending that will not be undercut. And that can help them feel more comfortable getting through market downturns and so forth. And so in that regard, absolutely, for people who have the kind of preferences that align with using protected lifetime income, that could behaviorally make them more comfortable actually using that 60-40 portfolio or whatever the case may be, investing more aggressively with their other assets outside of the annuity and helping to therefore get a better long-term financial planning outcome. Well, this is uh, this is a great opportunity, I think, to dovetail in some of the work that you have both done uh, around what you're calling the the RISA. So, talk to us about the RISA because it really sits at this at this uh, juncture between, you know, high levels of risk taking and a preference for guaranteed income. This is something we've been in conversation with uh, as we have a partnership at Orion uh, with the RISA. And so RISA stands for Retirement Income Style Awareness. Can you talk us up, uh, to us about the, the question you were trying to answer with this and, and what led you to dig into this RISA research at a high level? Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe I'll start and then I'll, I'll pass the baton to you, Alex, to continue the answer. But for me, it's going back to when I first started getting into retirement income planning, I would just see that there are these different approaches that, and people would talk past one another. So you've got, we, we call it total returns. It's more of the applying the pre-retirement accumulation investment-based approach post-retirement as well. Then you've got flooring approaches where people talk about first build a floor of protected lifetime income, then invest on top of that for more discretionary types of goals. Then you have this whole conversation around like bucketing or time segmentation approaches, which just treat the asset allocation for investments differently, where you hold bonds for short-term expenses, stocks for long-term expenses. And ultimately, I think any of these approaches can be valid if they're used by people who kind of have the right mindset for them. But the the research question or the, the question we had is, how do we help guide people towards choosing one of these strategies? Uh, Alex and I, through Retirement Researcher, get so many emails from people asking questions about things like, well, should I buy this annuity or should I use a 90% stock allocation or whatever the case may be? And of course, without having much in the way of details, the answer is always, it depends. We don't really know your circumstances. But then we started to search for, can we give them a little more guidance on this? Can we help them just identify if they have a particular style that might resonate with whatever it is they're asking about, because many times they may not know, they may just hear about something. It's like kind of random. You turn on the car radio, do you hear the commercial about, I hate annuities and so should you? Or do you hear a commercial about how a fixed index annuity does everything? It's like the kitchen sink of (laughs) upside potential, downside protection and liquidity. So then if you're randomly hearing one of those messages, of course it always sounds good when you hear it, but does it truly resonate with your underlying preferences? That That's where kind of the initiative for this research project was trying to see, could we uh, actually identify when these different types of strategies uh, strategies might resonate better with different individuals? Alex, if you want to. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I think it's right. I mean, look, it was a community, it was a community outsourced research program to really answer the question, it depends. Wade and I were just like, well, what what does this really depend on? 
And like any good sort of uh, researcher, we we started like rolling up our sleeves and we read through as much as we could in, in terms of stacks of books, in terms of trying to figure out what could uh, the It Depends uh, dep- depend on, right? And so after reading, I mean, we're really looking for trade-offs, looking, you know, and upon looking at the research, we were looking for trade-offs that folks are potentially making from the standpoint of going a specific a specific direction with regards to the retirement income planning and that led us that led us to to the risa frankly uh in terms of identifying them and then putting them through statistical rigor to figure out what are the factors that are the most salient in helping somebody determine their retirement income style now i would take one more step back wade and this is this has echoes of your previous question daniel in terms of you know we we truly feel that there are many ways to get the retirement income puzzle correct. We really feel that at our heart. We we do take an agnostic approach. There are many ways to do this. And it just depends in terms of how are you optimizing for it? I, I heard the, the interview you had with Morgan Housel. That, that was fantastic, by the way. And he was talking about, you know, he himself personally doesn't optimize for the highest penny, if you will, but rather what's the what's the plan that resonates the most with him? There's this sort of idiosyncratic vibe there right and you know from our vantage point we really feel that there are many credible retirement income strategies and then if you get it it depends it really it depends on the factors that resonate with you and trying to match them up as a starting point you always need to run the numbers etc cetera, etc cetera. but that's really what led to the whole the whole pulling of the thread and here we are well, it's it's fascinating because I started my career in the insurance channel. I was working almost exclusively with, you know, insurance-based advisors and found that, you know, an annuity was sort of the cure for every ill. And then more recently, I've been sort of more in the RIA space and have found more of the, you know, quote, quote unquote, I hate annuities sort of mindset. And I think what you all have done is is tried to put some scientific rigor around this to sort of destigmatize people to move to destigmatize these tools rather to to move people from their respective camps and just to say, look, this is a tool, right? Sometimes it's going to fit, sometimes it won't. That's going to be highly idiosyncratic. So a question here, and whoever can take it, whoever makes most sense. When I first heard about this, my my initial impulse was, can't we measure a lot of this on an RTQ? If you look at something like risk composure, you know, which has a lot to do with someone's behavior, their their level of anxiety, um, wouldn't that have some overlap with what you're measuring here, which is someone's preference for, you know, certain versus uncertain streams of income? Do you think what in your research, did you find any sort of overlap with something like risk composure or are these retirement styles really sort of a separate, separate beast? Sure. Let me let me start it off, Wade, and then I'll, I'll hand it off to you. And it's a great question because in creating this, you know, now there's always a marketing challenge for us just as a complete aside. Like, what are we? Right. And, and you kind of get are you bucketed in the risk tolerance questionnaire? category or not and we we strongly feel we're not we feel it's an and kind of kind of thing i i truly feel this is more of a precursor to risk tolerance because I, I would ask you to just take a step back daniel from the standpoint of once you're heading into retirement the risks change there's decumulation now and so in much the same way as you were accumulating a portfolio you needed you needed to decide 
what you're going to do for a living. You know, okay, what am I going to do for a living? And, you know, there's certain, am I an introvert? Am I an extrovert? Am I a back of the house guy? Am I a front of the house person, et cetera, et cetera. You have a certain style about you of how you want to source this professional income, your human capital. Once you're getting to retirement, you're you're really facing the same decision again. And it comes in the form of you mind your human capital. Now you have this investment capital that you've accumulated, hopefully, right? And how do you want to best decide to source that, to draw that out, right? And now it's different. If, In my view, if you go into the risk questionnaire, there's always room for investments and there's always a place for a risk questionnaire. But if you start off with a risk questionnaire, to me, that's kind of implicitly assuming we're going to put you in an investment portfolio because the way it's it's created and, you know, this quadratic functioning around that, getting a utility function, mapping it to a portfolio, it has that, that kind of vibe. Whereas if you just take a step back and say, okay, we can go this way, this way, this way from a strategy perspective, based on your preferences, I think then that leads to a more resonating strategy, which then you can then continue on into the portfolio. To some extent, what I think it's akin to, what a mistake we may be making as an industry, and I say maybe, is going back to that example of human capital. You know, you're a high school guidance counselor. I don't even think they call them guidance counselors anymore, but you're a high school guidance counselor and you figure out, okay, this is the best salary for you to take on a risk adjusted basis. And it's an IRS agent because you're going to have lifetime employment. You have a pension when you retire. This is the best efficient frontier professional job. You should do this. You know, you wouldn't think you would provide that advice to every student. You know, now as you retire, and if you just do a risk questionnaire or nothing else, you're kind of leading them to an investment portfolio that's the most optimal based on this risk tolerance, but you're you're skipping over what strategy they may want to resonate with. And by strategy, it could be a time segmentation strategy. It could be a total return. It could be a risk wrap. It could be a, an income protection. And I know that I'm throwing out terms that are new, but there's many ways to get it right kind of thing. And so I think we need to settle on that first before going into it. And that is doesn't really involve risk composure, but rather, what strategy do you resonate with the best? Wait. Yeah, and, and Alex made the point, but ultimately, so I mean, sometimes the RISA gets called a retirement risk tolerance measure, and that's not really the right way to think about it. Now, a risk tolerance questionnaire is always going to have a role in any financial plan, but really the asset allocation decision comes a bit later. And it, it depends on first selecting a retirement strategy. Now, what we found as well is when we look at the concerns people have for retirement, you know, like risk tolerance questionnaires are fundamentally based on wealth accumulation, modern portfolio theory, risk-adjusted returns, asset-only models with no distribution need. And when you start to look at the concerns that people have for retirement, that sort of risk is measured by short-term market volatility it doesn't necessarily have a relationship to concerns people have with regard to if they're worried about outliving their money, uh, if they're worried about having reserves available for unexpected healthcare expenses and, and so forth. And, and so before you get to the phase of the risk tolerance questionnaire, it is first just a matter of the RISA is retirement becomes a ceiling issue. How do I want to source retirement income to cover my basics? How do I want to build a strategy around that? And then when I get to the piece where I'm selecting the investment portfolio, that's where the risk tolerance questionnaire comes in to help choose that asset allocation for the investment piece. 
So you you both have brought up something that I've been asked about periodically, which is sort of the psychology of decumulation. I think for a lot of investors, and you know, I'll speak for myself, it's like my my mission is clear right now. Like in in my early 40s, like all I'm supposed to do is ignore market gyrations, set aside a little money every two weeks. More often than not, the pile of money is getting bigger. And that's like a gratifying thing. Like I know exactly. I know exactly what I need to be doing. I need to be diversifying. I need to be setting money aside and growing it for a future date. The psychology of decumulation is much less studied, I think much less talked about, and perhaps even much more complicated. So talk to us about the psychology of decumulation and how an awareness of someone's retirement income style preferences could, could help you solve for the, the particular complications of a distribution. Okay. Wade, you want me to start it up again and let you uh, sure. back clean up? <laughs> <laughs> when you have Babe Ruth, you let him bat forth. <laughs> uh, no, it, it, that, that's a good question. And this actually is a nice dovetail from the previous one. We found in our research, and, and Wade kind of uh, hypothesized there's four main retirement risks. Right from a decumulation standpoint, and I want to just backtrack a hair, Daniel. There's there's a whole burgeoning research sort of branch on just what it means to be retired and how you identify differently now than before, and that we're not looking at at all. And I don't think I can speak much about that. But with regards to decumulation, there's there's a few risks that you face in retirement, and Wade alluded to it earlier, and I and I want to make the point because this is where there's there's a there's a big difference longevity aversion, which is you don't know how long you're going to live, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, it gets tough, right? And this is where just accumulation-based driven tools don't kind of fit the bill as well, right? There's this, like, there's this longevity aversion as this thing to look, as this construct to look at. The other one is spending shocks. Spending shocks, as we found, splits into two fears. There's there's spending shocks like a tree fell on my house and now I have to buy a new roof kind of thing. And then there's spending shocks specific to healthcare. It's its own factor in and of itself. These are things you really want to you know, keep an eye on. There's also longevity. I mean, not longevity. There's lifestyle, which is more discretionary. You know, I want to, you know, I've retired. Now I want to enjoy it. This more existential sort of satisfaction of, you know, I'm here. Now what kind of thing? And then there's legacy. Like, I want to be impactful for future generations, not just give money away to not just pass on the assets to my children, but, you know, have money for future or for being impactful church, whatever, what have you. And what we found is the RISA actually is, is a significant, you know, predictive variability among longevity aversion and also uh, liquidity, which is uh, spending shocks, regular spending shocks and healthcare spending shocks. Other factors, you know, are important. But these are strong retirement concerns, and the RISA really picks up on them. And these are fears that people have. We, we don't see this. Controlling for other factors such as age, gender, uh, risk tolerance questionnaires, financial literacy, et cetera, the RISA remains significantly related to this at a, at a more robust level. So, uh, you know, what we see in the decumulation coming strong, you know, fast and furious is this longevity aversion. And I think the way it's related to the fragile decade a little bit, if you want to, you know, throw that in the mix and spending shocks, we see that true and true as this fear in the decumulation as you know, what risk do you want to take off the table? 
Wait. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so just maybe something I can add to that. And I don't spend a lot of time reading all the different forecasters or all the kind of <laughs> articles you see about this is what the markets are going to do or that's what the markets are going to do. But the headline from one did catch my attention because I, I think it really puts this into context where someone was forecasting that like what we're facing now in the markets will be like the period from 1966 to 1982 this 16-year period where markets were very choppy and that's where the 4% rule comes from and everything else. And for me as an accumulator, that was just like, like you were saying of what we're taught during the saving phase, stay the course, invest for the long-term and so forth. And like me, 16 years of choppy markets works out well because I have a paycheck and I'll be able to save from that and I'll be able to take advantage of buying shares at a reasonable price. And then if 16 years from now, that's when the market starts going up again, that could work out well for me. But then I think about that. Well, what if I was at retirement right now? I am no longer have the paycheck. I'm, I'm stopping work. I have to replace that paycheck. And then you get into the whole psychology of, do I want to spend my principal or am I going to try to live off of the cash flows from my portfolio? Uh, what a, Market volatility is really going to have a much stronger psychological impact on me when I have to rely on my portfolio to cover my spending when I no longer have that paycheck to do that. And I, I think that really just helps to express why the, the, psycho, the psychology of decumulation is so different that what Alex was saying about the fragile decade it's kind of like, when do market returns have the biggest impact on your financial plan? When you're young and you haven't saved much, it doesn't matter if the market goes up 50% or down 50%. It's just having a very small impact on your lifetime financial outcomes if you say just saved a few thousand dollars. But as you get close to retirement, those market returns are impacting all of your savings. And so they're having a bigger lifetime impact on you. So those last few years before you retire, and then when you retire and start taking distributions, that just further spikes the importance of a market downturn early in retirement, leads someone to have to spend an increasing share of what's left. And that starts to dig a hole for the portfolio that becomes hard to recover from. And so you're the most exposed to what's happening in the financial markets around your retirement date. And so even if the you haven't worked through the math of the, the sequence of returns risk, I think people have that sense of, and it's just simply the paycheck's going away. I've now got to replace that with my assets. And that's why these like longevity risk, worrying about outliving my money and so forth can really loom as a much bigger risk that a traditional just risk tolerance questionnaire doesn't really, maybe surprisingly, you might think like people who are more risk averse would be more worried about outliving their money, but that doesn't really seem to just pick up the type of nuance there. And that's that's what makes retirement so different from that psychological perspective. Yeah. And I think, you, you know, you make, you both make great points and so much of our advice is centered around the accumulator, right? To don't panic, stay the course, markets always bounce back. You know, that's true on a, on a long enough timeline. Uh, but what can be absolutely true for a 35 or even a 55 year old uh, is is less true for a 65 or, or a 75 year old. So let's talk about some of the output of the study, right? Let's talk about the different styles, the distribution of styles, and then specifically, you know, Alex brought up these these two specific the spending shocks and and the longevity risk. How would you know talk about the distribution of styles, and then how practically your advice 
uh, or an allocation would differ from one style to the other, what the solution might look like from one style to the other. Okay. Wait. Yeah, I, I could start with that. And so kind of what Alex was saying earlier about how we just tried to scour the literature to see where people were describing different trade-offs. We collected those, we wrote questions around them, tested them and so forth, and found there's these two primary factors that can help to explain somebody's retirement style. And the one is probability-based versus safety-first. Probability-based is, I'm, it, it's the investments world. It's I'm comfortable relying on stocks for the long-term, that stocks will outperform bonds and that will support more retirement spending than bonds alone versus uh, safety first is more a, a nuance of, no, I want some sort of contractual protection backing the assets I'm using to cover my core retirement spending and, and risk pooling through annuities. I mean, this is where I, any of these strategies are viable. I argue all day that the power of risk pooling through the annuity is quite competitive with anything the risk premium from the stock market could do. And then this other primary factor is optionality versus commitment. Optionality is really the sense of, I want to keep my options open as much as possible. I, I don't want to lock in anything. I want to be able to make changes. I want the flexibility. Whereas commitment is, I actually feel more comfortable committing to a strategy that will solve for my lifetime need. And so we build a matrix around those. We got the probability-based safety first, and then the optionality commitment. That gives us four quadrants. And this is the, the really interesting part for me was just seeing how these four quadrants explain these four broad retirement styles or retirement strategies that advisors have been talking about for years and years at this point, some of them going back to the, the 1980s. I mean, uh, this whole idea of retirement in general does, doesn't go back too far in history, but at least to the 1980s, you've got this idea of the total return uh, investing approach that's probability-based, comfort with the markets, and optionality. I want to keep my options open. You have income protection, so safety first contractual protections and commitment orientation. That's more about using simple income annuities to build protected lifetime income floors and then invest on top of that. Then, And those are the two core strategies. Then you've got these two more hybrid strategies that do have more of a behavioral element to them. And they're less common in practice as well, just because they have preferences that aren't always as commonly correlated. And that's, so you first, safety first and optionality. This is the bucketing approach. This is, I want contractual protections, but I also want to have optionality. So the, the idea that advisors developed in the 1980s was, okay, use bonds for short-term expenses, hold them to maturity, you have the contractual protection. Then the rest of the assets can be this long-term bucket or this growth portfolio to provide that optionality and upside growth potential. Then you have probability-based and commitment. So I'm comfortable with the markets, but I also want to commit to a strategy. And that's where this kind of idea, for example, a variable annuity with a guaranteed lifetime withdrawal benefit developed as a psychological kind of behavioral tool to match this sort of preference structure as well with upside potential within the annuity, step-up opportunities and so forth. But downside protection, probably less downside protection than a simple income annuity, but still, you know what the worst case scenario is. You have the ability for upside potential you have access to the funds and so forth as well. And, and so that's the risk wrap strategy. And, and that, then these two primary factors explain these different retirement strategies so well. And then we've, we've done the study a number of times. And maybe Alex, you want to give the breakdown sure. of the... <laughs> yeah, the only, as we take a tour of the matrix, one thing I would say specific to Daniel's question before I, I go off the rails here a little bit, uh, with regards to longevity, 
people on the bottom part of the matrix, which are more commitment oriented, you see high levels of longevity aversion there and makes perfect sense because those are the folks that are open to a floor of lifetime income, be it uh, an annuity that has a put in it for lifetime income, guaranteed living withdrawal benefits or simple SPIA, DIA, you know, single premium immediate annuities or, or the like. For From a liquidity perspective, the spending shocks that we talked about, those folks tend to live on the left side of the matrix in terms of being more uh, contr- more uh, safety first oriented, but optionality and commitment doesn't matter. If you're on the left side, if you're on the if you're on the if you're optionality and commitment oriented, they're looking to match potential spending shocks with some sort of bucket, if you will. You, you we see this actually. If you're on the bottom left, which is commitment oriented, but also uh, safety first, you know they have that consistent income, and from that consistent income, it allows them to earmark, you know, other assets as buffers. And so you see that. That's how it translates. That's how these fears or these concerns, better said, translates into strategies. In terms of the frequencies of these that we see consistently, you know, like anything, right? Uh, You don't want to make this into pop psychology or anything like that. So you want to make sure that, hey, this is not just what's your favorite Avengers character as a retirement income strategy kind of thing. You know, there has to be some heft behind it. If not, I'm just going to turn in my degree and call it a day. Mm-hmm. And and from that standpoint, you know, there's certain things that that you want to see, right? And you know, we'll just talk about reliability here, as as opposed to you know, what what are you measuring here? Are you measuring some sort of something that that's ephemeral, ephemeral, or are you measuring something that's more stable, right? And so what we see here pretty consistently is that 35% of the population identifies as total return, 35% identifies as income protection. 15% identify more or less as bucketing and 15% identify more or less as risk wrap. That's that's pretty interesting. And we see this among different groups. We've done two national studies and we've done a pilot study. And the samples are at this point, probably a number in the three, I want to say 5,000 actually. So it's pretty steady in that. that. That has a couple of implications beyond the purview of this podcast, which is, you know, to, to, to the point at the beginning, 35% of the people really resonate with a total return approach. You know, what are we doing as a profession for the other 65%? You know, mm-hmm. as opposed to saying, I hate annuities, that's 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 a dumb kind of thing to, to go at. Those are those are straw man arguments for the intellectual laziness. I mean, I, I really see it like that. That's as strong as I'm gonna get here, but it's like, what's going on, guys? Uh that being said, if you see this across cohorts, like you know, until you measure like a thousand people at in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and follow them in a longitudinal manner. It's hard to say, you know, with a lot of certainty, this is a trait and that's that. But if you look at different cohorts in their 30s and their 40s and their 50s and their 60s and their 70s, the distributions are the same. That 35, 35, 15, 15. That 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 gives us, and you you see the same pre and post retirement and the like. That gives us solace in saying, look, this is more trait-like. Than state like and state being, I'm happy. You know that can change, right? Trait like being more introversion, extroversion. Yes, there are differences in environment that could cause, etc., changes. But for the most part, you see the stability there. That's nice to see, and I, partly because I think we're at, at heart measuring something that's implicit. You know, all the you know, Wade said what the aha moment was realizing. Oh my! Not only are we measuring preferences, but if you take a step back. We've kind of brought to the surface a way to provide a framework 
for all these retirement income strategies that before good advisors were doing this. I strongly believe good advisors were implicitly doing this, albeit maybe clumsily, just simply because there wasn't, you know, something explicit framework to to really work within. But I, I think you see the stability there because we're measuring something that was already was just under the water and we just were able to surface it up. And I think that's that's at the heart of what you see in in interesting science results, at least from my perspective. So there, it doesn't sound like there were age-based differences. It sounded like there were no no meaningful difference among age-based cohorts. Were there any gender differences? I know there's a lot a lot of talk around risk taking and gender and a lot of bad ideas there. Were, were there differences in were there gender differences? Yes, there were. Uh, and you see differences. Women tend to be more protected, income focused than than men. You do see that in the same way that I'm sure there's certain personality traits that men exhibit more than than women from that vantage point. So that that yeah, you did see that. I'm just trying to think in the back of my head, uh, Wade, any other things that we well, may yeah, have seen differences Most in? demographic characteristics, you don't see much difference. Gender was an exception. Men do lean, and it's just tilting, but more towards total returns. Women more towards income protection. And then with net worth, you do find, although this may be endogenous, if I can use that term <laughs> on <laughs> with the three PhDs, but uh those who have higher net worths do tend to also tilt more towards the the total returns quadrant. And so, by, by endogenous, you're, you're saying chicken or the egg in the sense of you probably made a lot of money because you took more risk during your professional career. This goes back to the example of, you know, what profession you wanted to do and how that translates potentially. So the, the last question I'll, I'll ask about this you know, with with something like a risk tolerance questionnaire, just because it's a person's preference doesn't mean that's how it's always going to show up, right? I mean, someone with an extreme extreme comfort for taking risk who doesn't necessarily need to take much risk, the advisor might have that conversation with them. Do you ever find yourself doing that when someone has a really pr- pronounced preference uh, that sort of deviates from their financial realities? Say they have absolute comfort with total return, uh, but also have so much wealth amassed that they don't yeah. really need to take risk. How do you have that conversation with them or, or do you? No, that's a good, that's a great point. This is the whole risk as a preference standpoint. And then from your, your concept of risk composure, are you misperceiving it and what's the danger there? Uh, from our vantage point, there, there's, there's, there's a flip side to that argument as well. Starting point. We're agno- you know, one of these main foundational concepts for us. There's many ways to get it right. We're agnostic to the strategies. By the same token, this is just a starting point. By no means is this a rubber stamp. I think it's the advisor's job once you have that starting point. Because think about having to curate all the time among thousands of strategies. Once you have that starting point, now you can work within concentric circles around a plan or whatever to see what's economically feasible. That's mm-hmm. that's first and foremost. This is not a rubber stamping a moment. But what you usually see is a flip side. Somebody that may want income protection can't afford to buy it, can't afford to buy an annuity that will cover such and such. So they will need to take investment risk. You see it more in that in the, in that direction, Daniel, than the other way. But to your point, what happens to a client whose risk is really just a preference and they don't need to take it? You know, then yeah. it's a matter of how to find that fine line between prudence. And that's still the separate asset allocation question. It's like someone may be income protection, but they may may have a pension. They may, well, they probably have social security. They may have plenty of protected income already. They don't need an annuity. And therefore, even though their income protection 
when you just look at them, all their remaining assets stay in the financial portfolio. It looks like maybe their total returns in that context, but it's because they've already met the need. And, yeah. and, and so you get those nuances. They've well. quote already bought the annuity by working in a place that gave them a pension. You know, they sacrificed <laughs> right. maybe a little bit of their salary in exchange for that security. Well, I love the work that you all are doing because like I said, I feel like depending where in sort of the financial advice universe you sit, you likely have some strong biases and some strong feelings about these various tools. And I love that what you all have done is very scientifically have, you know, taken it uh, taken it to a place where we can think of, uh, about people in one of these four styles and help them give advice that fits, help them give advice that's consistent with their own idiosyncrasies and that they're likely to stick with. So if people want to learn more about this research, if people uh, want to figure out what the word endogenous means, where can they go? <laughs> where, can they, where can they go to read up more about the RISA and read up more about your retirement research and the great work that you're doing? Well, thank you. That's very kind. Uh, kind of you, Daniel. I would say resoprofile.com. In December, we're going to have an advisor challenge in which we'll go through this whole framework, uh, sign up for that. We've also are slowly releasing inside of Orion's ecosystem. If this is something of interest. Feel free to, to call your, your, your representative there. And we're also doing this right now with DPL. Uh, as well. Uh, they, they're another partner of ours that call your DPL representative there. If you're a consumer individual, resoprofile.com, and you could take it as a as an individual or through retirementresearcher.com. Wade, anything that I may have missed? Yeah. And just for their background reading, so my retirement planning guidebook that walks through all the different aspects of retirement and the Risa's chapter one, because I really view it as the first step for retirement planning. And then Alex and I have the podcast to retire with style where the first few episodes do talk about the RISA in more detail as well. Perfect. Great resources. Gentlemen, doctors, thank you for joining us today. And thanks for thanks for helping us think through these things deeply and scientifically. We really appreciate, and I'm glad to work in an industry that has people like you uh, sort of questioning these sacred ideas and, and making us think about them a little more scientifically. Hey, man. Thank you thank so you. much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.